This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Today, I want to talk about how the information age has become the misinformation age. From COVID deniers to QAnon enthusiasts and big lie believers, it sometimes feels like we live in a post-truth world. In fact, it feels like we already live there all the time now. My guest today is no stranger to that. Leonard Posner is the father of Noah, who in 2012, at only age six, was murdered at the school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary. Noah was one of 20 children and six educators who lost their lives in that massacre. And while much of America mourned the tragedy, some did not. Rumors abounded online, calling Sandy Hook a hoax. Amongst the chief conspiracists, conservative talk show host and founder of InfoWars, Alex Jones. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. I couldn't believe it at first. I knew they had actors there, clearly, but I thought they killed some real kids. And it just shows how bold they are that they clearly used actors. Leonard Posner took on Jones first with facts, then with the law, which made him a target for relentless trolling, first online, then in real life. Given the threats he and his family suffered, he's still wary of showing his face in either domain. So I wanted to talk to Posner about what he's learned from a near-decade-long personal battle against misinformation and what he thinks might solve it. Lenny Posner, welcome to Sway. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's a really important work you're doing. So I want to start at that beginning, and I'm not going to ask you to relive the day of the Sandy Hook shooting because I can't imagine. I have four children myself. But I do want to hear about the first day you saw lies online. When was that and what did you see? The first time I looked at anything online would have been a few weeks after the tragedy. So right after the tragedy, I didn't pay attention to anything else. Of course not. And when I did start to look around to see how it was being reported on, I saw right away that the um, InfoWars forums and other websites were... uh, really responding to the victims, not in a compassionate way. So topics like crisis actors and false flag and all of those buzzwords that are probably quite uh, common now, where in, you know, at the time of the shooting, that wasn't something that people were familiar with. The crisis actors, meaning these were actors who acted this out, correct? Yeah. And what I'd noticed after the tragedy is that people people were affected by this. So most people responded, of course, with compassion. And the people that didn't responded with a kind of hate. And that hate manifested itself with blaming. 
that took on the form of all of the accusations that started. Mm-hmm. There's always been conspiracy theories, but this was took on a, an amplification level and a, I would say a hate level that was unprecedented. It, it did. And there was something about the timing of this and the evolution of the internet that really, I've heard it referred to as the canary in the coal mine for this type of expansion in these ideas. So, uh, you know, it, it made me angry when I saw that right away. Uh, I was familiar with these ideas. I had entertained many conspiracy theories, and of course I was familiar with Alex Jones. But to hear them directed at me and what I was going through uh, was extremely upsetting. Explain why you were familiar. Well, I was familiar because I entertained conspiracy theories. I had an interest in it, and I was familiar with uh, people like Alex Jones. And when you say entertain, you just you thought it was interesting or just as, as— He was entertaining, and, you know, when uh, I came across it, I would give it a few minutes of my time. Did anything stick out in your mind where you saw it? I mean, all of it's pretty horrible if you spend any time listening to it. But is there anything that you were, like, shocked by? I wasn't shocked. I mean, I respected the possibility that people had questions, that people uh, wanted to have more information about this extreme example of gun violence. Uh, As I said, I was familiar with most of the most of the ways of thinking. So whether it was a gun grab or whether it was crisis uh, actors or crisis actors or the government was involved in staging it or just this grand conspiracy concept where everyone, including the town, the community, law enforcement, every government agency, everyone was somehow part of a scripted event. I was familiar with all these ideas. So if it's George Soros is one thing that you can just go on, but this was individual people that would have to coordinate across Rather yeah, this was very different. Yeah. And things have changed so rapidly. Indeed. It's very hard to think back to a world of uh, what life was like in 2010. People were posting a lot more uh, images on Facebook. People were not making their friends list private. People were uh, much less guarded. And that's really evolved in the last 10 years. And and something, I think, was transforming with the InfoWars show itself. So the focus, I think, prior to that was mostly uh, people in government and, and large figures. And somehow this transformed into now putting a microscope to victims, putting a microscope to family members, focusing in on anyone who dared do an interview after this tragedy, picking that apart and... Uh, it was a response, you know, almost like a, a traumatic response, but not of compassion or sympathy. It was just a response of anger. Did you get a sense of who these people were and what led them to believe and kind of move up against you? Uh, this was a, a mix of variety of people. You you had the people who had always were anti-government, didn't trust anything. And then you had uh, a lot of people who were... Um, young parents, young mothers with children into that similar age. And this was just unthinkable to have six and seven-year-olds murdered. So there were people who got caught up in this. They then decided that they were all citizen investigators. And then they started to dig through people's Facebook accounts and uh, 
Joe Picasso web album accounts and anything they could find related to a person and gathering all this information uh, using the same way of thinking of uh, finding coincidences uh, and random things that make sense to that paranoid way of thinking and constructing all, you know, deeper and more elaborate theories. I have to say, I, I appreciate how charitable you're being to people who denied how your son died. And then on top of it, they're doing things to you and making you into a villain. I don't quite know what I would do, but I think it would not be to be this measured. I think chairs would fly or something would happen. Um, but you said citizen investigators. I sometimes think it works. Other times I think it's like citizen surgery. Would you understand what they found appealing or believe so fiercely? You started to engage, correct, with them? Uh, well, I mean, I left it alone for, I left it alone for about a year. And then early 2014, I kind of jumped in. I said, all right, well, let's see what's happening here because it really isn't fading. And there's just a lot more camaraderie going on and they're really echoing each other's ideas and uh, and they're getting pretty intense about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was starting to get monetized. People were raising money to uncover the truth. So I threw myself into the mix and joined a, um, a closed Facebook group to talk to some of the people, make myself available and, and see what their response would be. And? That's where I realized that they were um, kind of injured by this tragedy and their response was anger and, and not compassion. Not compassion. So part of what you did was put out real information, like medical examiner's report on Noah's death. Did you think at the time that facts would change their minds given how spun up they were? Uh, I, I did think that and I did change a lot of minds. And that, that's one thing that maybe isn't talked about enough because making that information available was quite significant because the only thing that people who were very interested in this uh, tragedy had were conflicting news reports. The um, Connecticut State Police report on the shooting had not yet come out. So they just had all of these conspiracy-minded anomalies that they were digging through and combining and coming up with theories. So any regular person that wanted to look into this tragedy, the first thing that they would come across would be these um, YouTube videos and blogs and you know the impact now that has on people because you can take regular people and convince them that the earth is flat if they consume en enough of that material. And that's just what happened, that young mothers who were scared about this happening in their own life started to entertain the idea of, well, I don't need to stress because it may have not happened. Very good point. So one of the things that happened uh, when you're engaging with a conspiracist and putting yourself out there, it does make you a target because eventually they start to dox you. They posted your social security number, address online. Talk a little bit about that because here you are suffering a terrible tragedy and you become a target yourself. I do become a target because I stand in the way of them having this... Uh, you know, giant um, party where they're just attacking the memory of the children, attacking the memory of the families, the community, and they're just mocking everyone and they're just having a great time doing that. And my work was really putting doubt into what they were doing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the um, putting out that information. 
some attention was given to me at that point, but not as much as when I started taking content down. That's when it really went to to a whole other level. So Mm -hmm. approaching the anniversary of 2014, there were large videos that were released that were pretty intense in terms of just hours of lies about every single family. So I set out with volunteers to report every single one of those videos and have every single one of those videos taken down. And InfoWars started to blog about that and they started to use my name. And that's when the real vilification began, where in front of his entire audience, he was saying, here's this bad guy that's taking away our free speech. Which is their favorite go-to. A giant party is a, is a horrific descriptor, um, but absolutely true of these ghouls. But let's move on to Jones, who plays a critical role in your story. What was the breaking point that pushed you to file a suit against him? Um, I wouldn't say there was a breaking point. It just took a while for it to, to come together. I had been planning um, to do all of this for some time. Um, but he was repeating things that were completely debunked. And um, he targeted uh, he, he targeted my son. He specifically blogged about my son. He targeted me. He spent a few days talking about me on his show. Um, he created these memes that were just amplified and repeated thousands of times all over the world. Uh, things that to this day I can't get removed. Give me an example. There was an instance where Noah's image appeared in another tragedy in uh, Pakistan. And he titled uh, an article on two of his blogs on Infowars and Prison Planet uh, titled Sandy Hook Victim Dies Again. Oh, my God. And that became another piece of cornerstone content in the Sandy Hook denial. Wow. That takes, wow. I don't even understand the depth of that cruelty. Um, Earlier, you said memes were shared thousands of times. I think it's an understatement. Infowars had daily average of nearly 1.4 million visits to its website and views of videos posted by its main YouTube and Facebook pages, according to the New York Times analysis, web data firms, Tubular and others. Um, But I'm going to play a clip of Alex Jones from a taped deposition on his excuse. You know, I myself have you know, almost had like a form of psychosis back in the past where I basically thought everything was staged. You know, I've now learned a lot of times things aren't staged. So, um, you know, I think as, as a pundit and someone giving opinion um, that, you know, my opinions have been wrong, but they were never wrong consciously to hurt people. Well, I know my reaction to that, and I can't say it on the New York Times podcast, but what was yours? Um that he's still, you know, playing the part mm-hmm. that um, understands his audience and the kind of uh, bullshit he can feed them. Mm-hmm. So giving my opinions that were sometimes wrong, just, oh, oops. I think it's an oops, right? It's like the cruelest oops of all time, but it's an oops nonetheless. Right. Well, he still denies that he has actually said the things that he has said. Do you have any insight into him? Have you met him? I have not met him, no. Have you um, wanted to meet him? Or you feel it's... No, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Any insight into why you think he's doing this? Just he himself is a an actor. Yeah, pretty much. This is 
he found something that works and he created a model uh, that a lot of other people copy of denial. Um, and he's been successful doing it. Very successful. How do you feel about him? Quite indifferent. Really? Yeah. Why indifferent? That's an interesting selection of a word. Well, I've, I've um, accomplished what I needed to accomplish. And now it's just um, him doing the same thing he's always done. I don't really know why he didn't put the brakes on these lawsuits a long time ago. So they must be benefiting him in terms of media coverage and the kind of uh, negative uh, coverage that he enjoys. Yeah, he does, certainly. He, Was, I, go ahead, sorry. I, I see him as like, the if anyone is familiar with like the WWF or W, he thinks he's like one of the villain, you know, uh, wrestlers and he just takes on that persona. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of see it all as a, you know, big joke. Yeah. That he thinks it is. Yeah. But it certainly takes lack of soul to be doing that. Was it difficult to get other parents to join you in this mission, the lawsuit specifically? It, it was. It it took some time. Um, I, I spoke to a number of people in the community and, and brought up the topic of um, bringing suit. And, um, and I had filed other lawsuits prior to this against people who were uh, really active in uh, this denial and stirring up a lot of trouble and uh, creating a lot of content that people were just repeating, Um, whether it was books that were published or blogs that were, um, that had gotten a lot of attention. Um, It took some time, but finally, once I filed the lawsuit, I think people knew it needed to be done. Um, But in 2021, Jones was found guilty in his fourth defamation suit filed by the parents of the Sandy Hook victims. He was 0 for 4 in these suits. Did that get you resolution? Um, It did, but I had expected that to happen. The Texas case, which is the first case that was filed, I think he was found guilty in October. And um, I always refer to the interview I did on Frontline where I was asked a similar question. And my response was, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I've already won. Because him admitting that that he basically lied or had psychosis when he denied this was all that I, you know, needed to hear in terms of him completely changing his mind publicly. Yeah, he didn't probably privately. Um, but he got dinged on a technicality. Do you think the case will be preventative in this war against misinformation? Do you think it's a landmark case in that regard? I think it's an important case because it shows people who are targeted this way or victims that there are remedies for it. And going to the courts is one path because there's really nothing else you can do. And this, um, there are things that you can do on the internet that if you did them in real life, there are laws that govern real life. But on the internet, it's unregulated space. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Francis Haugen 
and you get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Lenny Posner after the break. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hardfork. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half where you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Is there anyone you hold more accountable? Was it the platforms or someone like Alex Jones who manipulated the platforms? Because these believers do get sucked in. It's really quite astonishing. Um, I don't find them blameless in any way. But did you pick one group that you thought was most uh, problematic? So Alex Jones absolutely amplified this more than any one single individual. There were, of course, the people who were the content creators, and he was repeating what they were saying. But there were uh, some things that were unique to his own creation. He was contributing to the hoax theories as well. And... He was hosting people on his show and he was um, creating, you know, this kind of um, heroes for them in this denier world. The platforms, absolutely, um, outside of any specific individual, the platforms uh, clearly are to blame for amplifying and bringing this information to people. When my producer, Naima, asked you on the phone how platforms initially reacted, you said they responded like they were run by Alex Jones. Can you explain that? Well, the focus for all of these platforms is growth and expansion. They really don't want to deal with the cleanup at all. And uh, for as long as they can avoid having to do that, they did. So they let Alex Jones run rampant. They just didn't want to fix it. They were not interested in fixing it. Yeah, I've had a couple runs around the block with Mark Zuckerberg about this, but let's talk about the individual sites. Tell me about how you cross paths with each of them in your quest to get information or have misinformation taken down. And for lack of a better thing, I want you to give them a grade A to F. So let's start with WordPress. I know Matt Mullenweg pretty well. Very much doesn't want to necessarily, he would use the term censor, I would say edit misinformation. So WordPress, how do you think they behaved? And talk a little bit about your interaction with them. Well, they all got, you know, Fs somewhere around, you know, 2016. 
And at that point, WordPress gets an A. They handled it quickly. And of course, it, it took, you know, shaming them publicly for that to happen. But, but I did get, you know, I was contacted by Matt directly. And what did he say to you? I'd have to sort of paraphrase, but um, I think I got a message saying, you know, let's talk. Or And then um, from there, it was, you know, we, we deserve this kind of shaming. You're right. Um, you know, we apologize. Let's make this right. And then from there, um, there was a change in terms of service. And a lot of content disappeared very quickly in a short amount of time. Okay. Twitter. What about their grade? And then what was your interaction with them? Uh, my interaction with Twitter was um, very little interaction. Twitter tends to pay attention to material that needs to be taken down right around the time when a, you know, a, a documentary piece is being worked on. So if that's being worked on, they'll reach out to Twitter and ask questions. And then suddenly Twitter will pay attention to things that I reported months ago. So that's an F minus. It's worse than an F minus. Yeah. Twitter is probably the worst. And you can't even submit a court order to Twitter. Because? There's no pathway to do that. Did you ever talk with Jack Dorsey, the CEO? I did not. Um, Twitter really gets the worst grade there is. Yeah. I, I was sending them stuff during that time. And I'm like, I'm not your help desk. Okay, Facebook. Um, I just want to add a few more things about Twitter. Go ahead. I've always viewed Twitter as really the worst of the worst. And only because when we think about social media platforms, the worst part of YouTube really is the comment section. And Twitter is just the comment section. Yeah. So that it already starts off being the worst and it allows for anonymous users. So it really is that type of space. They were okay with removing images for copyright. But not very quickly. It took, took time. But I think that, that comes back to the volume. Um, I don't know how many tweets are posted, you know, on an hourly basis. But I think there's like a billion tweets every two days. So there's really no way human moderators can address content that's being reported, a percentage of the content that's being reported. There's no way you can do it. Without going out of business. Yeah. I mean, they could. I, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, could it be humanly possible? Probably. I don't think they can hire enough people to deal with a, a billion pieces. Yes, they've architected a system that's impossible to moderate. That's really the problem, and designed by people who I always say have never been unsafe a day in their lives. Um, so less than F for Twitter, Facebook. So Facebook suffers from the same exact problem, where they have built something that has a population of, it's a cyber world of 4 billion people or more, and they won't allow an outside police force in or, or anything really. So it, it's even worse. How can they have enough human moderators to address this information? And so up until I think 2016, Facebook gets an F as well. And then since then? Well, between that time period and COVID, they removed quite a bit of content. So they went from an F to, uh, to an A. It, removing an entire group on Facebook, the volume of material that, gets, that disappears is phenomenal. Removing a, and a user account that's existed for a decade 
everything disappears. Everything that person commented on, everything that has been reshared that that person posted, it all disappears. So a lot of this hoaxer kind of underworld, I think, had an opportunity to grow because Facebook ignored it. I would agree. Um, interestingly, I had an inter- a very famous interview with him in 2018 where we started off talking about Alex Jones and I said to Mark, you're going to be taking him off. It's just a matter of time and you're creating a problem by letting him grow. This was precisely my issue. But one of the things that I remember thinking was that he doesn't understand what's happening in the time it takes him to decide or grow up or do something. Uh, these people get enormous uh, growth during that period. Um, in my 2018 interview, he said, I think going to a, someone who's a victim of Sandy Hook and telling them, hey, no, you're a liar, that is harassment, and we will actually take that down. Did they at that time? They started to do that in 2018. They did. They added a new policy, and they had been recrafting their bullying and harassment policy from that point onward. So one thing that had changed when I started working with them is they added this new way of reporting material, and which was really something that I had been asking for going back to 2015 to make uh, victims of tragedy a protected class. And that's, that was the first way that they started addressing this directly. And what really put this topic at a different level, I think, at that point was that this entire hate machine that already had existed on Facebook for um, five years was then targeted at younger users who were familiar with social media, which was after the shooting in Florida and Parkland. Did you talk to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's when they really couldn't, you know, ignore this anymore. Did anyone high level at the company contact you, given how active you were? I've had multiple um, meetings with people in Facebook, but I don't know their level in the company. But I think Facebook is different from companies like Google because it's just it has a more of a mom and pop shop mindset. That's my kind of interpretation. Yeah, they think they're tiny. That is certainly true. The richest people in the world always think that they're simple people. Um, YouTube and Google, finally. So Google search began looking at the search results that they were giving people and started to make the hoax material less authoritative. YouTube as well. YouTube probably did the most amount of work on this material. Why do you imagine they did? Um, because of the amount of material that was removed in the way that they interacted with me. And it, it's quite organized and there were a lot of different departments that handled different areas and they have a lot of platforms. It's not just YouTube. It's not just Google search. Once they became aware of this and they started to work towards it and they modified their uh, bullying and harassment policies. They added something to their bullying terms of service uh, along the lines of denying real um, real world events and uh, targeting the next of kin, which was their way of adapting to my request, which was making victims to protect the class. Um. It's interesting, in 2017, from a Trace article, you're talking about the virality of hoaxes, and you said, quote, it's like a brush fire that needs to be contained. Now, because it was ignored, it's not on the edge, it's dead center, it's burned into the capital. 
Well, I mean, it, unfortunately, that which may have sounded like an exaggeration when I said it, we years later realized that it isn't, and it's quite unfortunate. So that was the trajectory that we were on. I mean, it, no one th- considered that this needed to be redirected and shaped. It was just left alone. And yeah. that um, took on a life of its own. Do you think there are solutions to this, given how far it's gone? If they were going to do this to kids who were murdered, then at the Capitol, then with the election, do you see a solution to misinformation? You told my producer we needed a three-letter enforcement agency, for example. We do. We absolutely need to, because things that happen on the Internet, regular law enforcement considers it to be really low-level annoyances, and they'll tell you to turn off your phone or turn off your computer or turn off your screen as if that can, you know, make that go away or will prevent other people from tagging you in material. And it's such, you know, minor stuff in their opinion, but it's not minor stuff who for people whose lives get ruined with doxing or revenge porn. These are tremendous, tremendous violations of people's rights. And again, if someone were to do that, you know, stand outside your home with a with a billboard and a loudspeaker and say things about you. There are avenues where you can get help, where you could have law enforcement help you. There is no such thing on the internet. Mm-hmm. When you think about uh, things, so a three-letter enforcement agency, like the Department of what? Um, the Department of Internet Safety. Yeah, that's good. That's a good name for it. What about stripping away immunity under Section 230? Because I think one of the ways you focus in on this is is liability, that they have some liability for their sloppy, sloppy management of the system. Yeah, I, I've always said that regulation is inevitable and it needs to be done. I think that, you know, that's going to take a while to happen. But if it was up to me, it would happen overnight. And then let's figure it out from there. And it'll be painful along the way, but it needs to be done. It's 10 years since Sandy Hook. Yeah, it's approaching that. So, slow. Well, it's it's not just Sandy Hook. There, there have been so many other things that have occurred because of misinformation online that that can't be undone any longer. What do you say to legislators then? I, I've started to blame them at this point. Alex Jones is going to be Alex Jones and he will take advantage of all their, they'll take advantage of these tech systems as long as they're sloppy and, and regulators do nothing. What do you say to regulators when you speak to them? Well, I think part of the problem is they don't fully understand this technology. Well, that's been 20 years, so they've had some time. Perhaps it would probably need more younger people in government to, to deal with this, but I was under the impression that companies like Facebook wanted the government to take over. They want to focus on growth and expansion and, you know, and breaking things. They don't want to deal with the cleanup and they'd rather someone do that, but I don't think government really knows how to do it just yet. Um, is there any law that you think if you could wave a wand and create one, what would your law look like? What would the Lenny Posner law, or maybe the Noah hmm. law look like? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I have a ready answer for that. But um, I think 
the same way that laws protect our civil rights in the real world, that has to exist on the internet. It really has to. And now platforms like Facebook, they want to go into a more elaborate, complex virtual world where the potential for human injury is probably far greater. Um, I really appreciate you speaking to me because I know your life has been defined by this tragedy and the aftermath. Is this your your life's work and will it always be? It, it, it has been and it continues to be. And we're contacted by a lot of people for help. Uh, you say that, you know, that you didn't want to be a help desk for... Uh, for these companies. No, I shouldn't be. I think more it was I didn't want, I'd be happy to be, but they should be doing the work. They shouldn't have to rely on me yelling at them. Yeah, that's kind of, it's, some of it's turned into that. Mm -hmm. You're the help desk. And I don't want to be doing that either. Yeah, it's not your job and you're not being paid. They're all rich. (laughs) You know what I mean? Which is interesting. Um, I want to ask you because you have two other kids, Noah's siblings, how are they doing? Um, my kids are doing well. I've tried to, we, we've tried to give them a, uh, regular life, but, um, that is their history. That is where they came from. So, um, they didn't only lose a, a brother in the tragedy. They were just a few feet away from where the shooting had happened. So I've, I've often said that I could have lost three children that morning. So they are also survivors of the shooting. 100%. You should have lost no children. And, and the fact that you have to keep reliving it because of the, these platforms and horrible, horrible people like Alex Jones is, is really even more of a tragedy. Anyway, yes. Lenny Posner, thank you so much. Thank you for all your work. I will still keep being the help desk because I do actually enjoy yelling at these tech companies. It's a pleasure, especially when it comes to big issues like this. It's, uh, I, I am often shocked by their lack of interest in uh, real issues and their hiding behind um, things, important concepts like free speech and using it to shield their own um, greed. I don't know what else to say, it really. I agree. Thank you for saying that. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuelewski. Our senior editor for Sway is Naima Raza, and our executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. And Alex Jones, you should be ashamed of yourself. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. 
Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.